cover story. Cover a story or attain that coveted story. Get it? That is exactly what you want. Quoted as the expert, the story, headline, the spin. Every week, join us to talk about all things important to relating to the public. Your public. Craft your image, promote your products, create expert status, become the buzz. Join us with the pros. PR 101, crisis management, media blitzing, it's all here on Cover Story. We're reserving a headline for you. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this edition of Cover Story. This is Brandy Shapiro-Babin, and I am extremely excited because we are uh, continuing our coverage of the Silver Anvil series uh, for the Public Relations Society of America, which everyone knows is the Oscars for the Silver Anvil, and today is no different. Um, Did I just say it's the Oscars for the Silver Anvil? That is wrong. It's the Oscars for the Public Relations Community. So sorry. Anyway, today we've got two really wonderful featured guests. Uh, So without further ado, I want to introduce to you um, Yasmin Koenig, who is the Senior Account Supervisor in the Los Angeles office for Edelman. She's a member of the Zune team, leading the public relations programs for Microsoft's latest digital entertainment offering, um, specifically consumer music and lifestyle PR initiatives. And uh, before joining Edelman, she worked at MPRM, an entertainment public relations firm servicing clients in the film, television, music, and digital entertainment industries. Uh, she's done. She's worked with Walt Disney Internet Group, Sony Pictures. She also successfully launched um, SNOCAP Incorporated. Napster founded Sean Fanning's new digital music company. She has a phenomenal background, and today we will be discussing um, Edelman and Microsoft's um, submission, which is Category Seven Marketing Consumer Products, Subcategory Seven B Technology. Welcome, Yasmin. Thank you so much. So happy to be here. This is terrific. How exciting for you. We are so excited. The team is just over the moon about um, even the opportunity to be named as a, a finalist. Um, is you know we think it's a great honor in itself. So and the company we're in obviously is uh, you know everyone's done a fantastic job. So we feel like winners already. Good. And you know something? I mean that's the most important part. Obviously, is like feeling really great about the work that you've done, and then it's even better when you're acknowledged by your peers that you've done great work. Absolutely. You know, it's a, it's a tough thing to um, launch any new product. Um, technology is, is sort of like the wild, wild west in many ways. And uh, so bringing a new digital entertainment product to market is a tough thing. And then, you know, going into an industry where you've already got an established market leader is can, can be daunting. So it was definitely a difficult task that we embarked on last year. So it's really, really great. Uh, the team at Edelman were really excited that, that you know, our peers and everyone in the industry um, recognized kind of our first step into the door last year, shall we say. Yay, that's super exciting. And I mean, I think what's really important for people to, to pay attention to, historically, there's been no other single device that's been able to achieve these kind of results in a six-week um, launch period. That's true. That's true. And, um, you know, it's, we, we set, out, set out with a goal last year before we came to Martin for anyone knew what we were doing. And it was, it was our little secret. You know, we said, we'll be really excited if we come in as a solid number two. And uh, we definitely established that within a matter of weeks. Once you start seeing the brand being named in, you know, casual conversation or showing up on late night television or showing up on Saturday Night Live skits, <laughs> you kind of know that you, you've made it a little bit, that you've achieved your goal, and, uh, and we definitely got there. And, uh, you know, we were, we, were, we were impressed with it. It happened really quickly. So the consumer market um, was very accepting, shall we say. Yeah, which is terrific, because at the end of the day, nobody likes a monopoly. <laughs> exactly. That's very true. So. It's all about giving, it's giving people choice mm-hmm. and uh, music and, and entertainment online. Not only, I mean, film, video, television, it's all converging and it's all about giving choices and easy access. And so we, you know, Microsoft is just doing, you know, trying to give people another option. So, yeah, Which is great. And it's nice because obviously they're a trusted source as well. So it makes things a, lot bit, a little bit easier. Can we talk about budget or are we not allowed to talk about budget? Um, due to client confidentiality, probably shouldn't, shouldn't touch on that, unfortunately. Oh, good. No, no, I love it. Shouldn't. Let's do it then. It's like not a definite no. 
course we want to yeah, know. What specific questions did you have regarding uh, regarding kind of what we had to work with? Well, because the thing is, I mean, I definitely think, you know, it's, it's phenomenal for the listening audience to hear how you guys approached launching this. And I think people will be able to learn a lot. But there's a difference between someone launching a new technology from a startup perspective and then someone mm-hmm. having the resources, not only, you know, um, you know, people wise, but then, of course, financially. Mm-hmm. to do this kind well, of launch. Uh, without talking about numbers specifically, mm-hmm. what we will say is um, even though Zune, I mean, if you look back, Zune's a new brand. It's a new pillar within entertainment and devices within Microsoft. So even though Microsoft, we all know it, well-established, huge behemoth corporation that's done some great work in software, Xbox, whatnot, um, Zune itself is very much a startup within this large entity. So, you know, has to prove itself and, and really has to, um, you don't always necessarily have the same tools or the same backing that you would have, you know, if you were already an established huge behemoth brand coming into market. So there are actually a lot of similarities between a small company, small companies I've launched in my career that, you know, don't have corporate backing versus, you know, the individual new small brand within Microsoft. So there are, there were a lot of similarities. There are a lot of similarities. Mm-hmm. I think what we relied on a lot is really establishing credibility with key influencers, with people within the music industry, music fans, people who were in digital entertainment, really starting from the ground up and sort of letting, um, our fans, so to speak, and music fans, people who really love, you know, bands and hip hop mm-hmm. and people in the urban market really evangelize the product and, and, and spread it through word of mouth, so to speak, which is very much in tune with the philosophy of Zune, which is community. Which is terrific. So let's take a step back. And so for those of you um, who are kind of going Zune, although you should all know who Zune is by now. And like, you know what the worst thing is? This whole week, when I think of you, and I'm so sorry, I keep wanting to go Zoon, 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 <laughs> right? <And> so, <laughs> well, I hope people know who we are. That means that we've done a good job, right? Yeah. No, absolutely, you do, you do. But there's all these things, you know, but of course, it's the wrong uh, it's, it's the wrong age group. That and I kept wanting to sing the Zoom song, you know, from uh, Box 350, right. Boston, Mass. Okay, anyway, I digress. So for <laughs> those of you that don't know, um, Zoon, is a, it's a portable media player that mm-hmm. competes... Um, let's say with, I can say it, with iPod. Yes, you can say it. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, iPod, iPod obviously um, has the largest market share, but Zune has, has proven itself as like a very strong second, which is really terrific. And what you guys focused on, if I'm not mistaken, is predominantly differentiating yourself from the iPod and the other portable media devices out there, or the MP3 players, I should say. And- <laughs> Yes, I mean, it's definitely, uh, Apple has done a great job in defining a market and defining a category, and by no means do we ever, you know, we want to give them props for what they've done, Um, but at the same time, entertainment is changing, things are converging, like I said before, Mm -hmm. so it's also time to kind of really listen to what the consumers want and what will really help make that experience all that much better for them, so Microsoft you know, stepped back and looked at the market and said, what can we do to really, you know, step this up for, for music fans, for people on the move? And some of the features that are ingrained in this, in, in this digital media player really um, are, are in tune with that. For example, the FM tuner bringing back radio, you know, um, and then wireless sharing, which was one of our big themes for, for launch because it was the first player to ever do this, to sync, you know, mm-hmm. from Zoom to Zoom to actually be able to share a song with you if we were in the same room. So Which is very a couple cool. of, introducing a couple new angles um, to spice things up. Right. And also, too, because I think your research really showed that, you know, the perception sometime of, of MP3 players is it's a very antisocial sort of activity. So now to open it up to people so that they can share so that it's more of a group activity that people do like part of like bonding, um, like globally is music for people. Absolutely. Um, music is a very social experience. Um, if you think back going to your local record shop, even, it's a very, um, it's, a very it's community, community-oriented and also a visual experience, actually looking at the vinyl covers and looking at what the bands look like. It's a very um, social 
um, thing. And trying to replicate that in the digital environment makes sense with things like a large video screen where you actually can see your album work or a service online. Our service is called Marketplace. Um, going online and being able to find that information about your band through the retail service and looking at you know what what the what the album cover actually looks like. It's trying to replicate that as we move into this digital medium. And also the market today um, is very community community oriented. I would say mm-hmm. um, from gaming, you know, with things like Xbox Live, and then you've got your MySpace generation. So you know, people like to hear what their friends are listening to. They like to get recommendations. So it's only natural to introduce that into a product line. Which is terrific. So let's talk about strategies, if we can. Absolutely. Cool. Well, well, as far as um, for our initial launch strategy, when when you're coming out of the gate, and I'm sure anyone can attest to this, no matter what the product is, if it's brand new, it's all about establishing credibility, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Awareness and credibility. So our main objective out the gate for this particular launch was to really establish credibility and let people know who, who we were. Um, and it made sense to, to start with um, early adopters and, and key influencers. Um, for example, you know, people that are really ingrained in that you know, hipster MySpace generation, people who really get what portable digital technology is about, who would be inclined to pick up something that's different and really use it, mm-hmm. and then evangelize it to their friends. So our effort for this campaign when a launching started was very sort of underground and, and not your traditional public relations launch that you would see. Normally it's not going out and doing a media tour with, the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times right off the bat, it's really maybe talking to the blogging community, which was a huge pillar in this launch. Um, it's talking to the guys at Engadget. It's, it's um, you know, giving players to people who are running social networks or giving players to um, people who are indie rock bands and really starting sort of a groundswell of a buzz that comes up from there and then is supported by your traditional media outreach. Which is terrific. How did you how how did you go about creating the categories of like let's say your grassroots efforts that would seed you know the national campaign? Um, well, a lot of this uh, Microsoft does extensive market research, so they very much know who who their customer base is and what pillars they fall into. So it's really segmenting that and are making Edelman making their PR program support the customers that the device is trying to sell through to. Um, you know, extensive market research they did, um, but really looking at, you know, who are the early adopters in this generation. It's, you know, sort of this, this urban community. It's these hipsters. It's, it's the iPod generation, but people who are willing to try something a little bit different. And they've li- they literally segmented it out, and our research did as well. So it's really targeting where do these people get most of their information, well, we learned that a lot of these people get their information online. Uh, it's a different generation. It's not just going and turning on MTV anymore. It's waking up in the morning and while I'm on my college campus or in my dorm room, I'm checking out, you know, Pink is the new blog and really getting my recommendations from there. So it's knowing where they're consuming their information was half the battle. Cool. And how did you, how did you narrow that focus down? Um, to the blogging community specifically? Yes. Uh, well, to the blogging, blogging has become a, a, a kind of a static pillar, I think, in PR campaigns these days. But more so, it, it wasn't. I don't think kind of a guaranteed channel um, for most strategic plans when we did this about a year ago. And as you know, Edelman has, we have our own blogging initiative, and it's something that our digital entertainment practice utilizes for a lot of their campaigns. So for us as an agency, it was natural to look at the online environment, and especially with our work with MySpace and sort of having the industry knowledge of how um, people are consuming entertainment Mm -hmm. and and, and information anyway through this online medium, that we brought our institutional knowledge, shall I I say, to the table and really use that as a a key piece to leverage and, and make this campaign different and effective. Cool. That's so terrific. Okay, so let's talk about execution. 
Absolutely. Um, we, we had a, a, a tiered approach um, to this, and execution was, you know, as I said, we brought in early adopters early on and, and you know, showed them a walkthrough of the device in, well in advance of actually coming to market. We, we officially launched the device, I think it was November 13th, of last year, but our process of actually educating these, you know, our, our champs, shall we say, um, started probably about six to eight weeks in advance of that, um, bringing them up to Seattle and really not only showing them what what physically the player in the service was about, but really showing them that, you know, who the Zoom team was. I must say that everyone on the Edelman team and everyone internally with our clients really do love and live and breathe music Mm -hmm. and really are very passionate about it. Um, And I think bringing your peers in the editorial community up to really see that, um, you know, delivers half the message. It's showing rather than telling the old school writing rule that many of us know. Um, so having them come up and really seeing who, you know, what, who created the ideas for some of these, um, for, for like the FM tuner or why, why really do you want the big screen and, and really having the, the executive team themselves and us, the Edelman team, really explaining all the things of why we were passionate about the product um, really conveyed those messages. I think that's an excellent point because, you know, two reasons. One is it's one thing if you get um, a product in the mail and it's nice, right? Like it's a, it's a cool freebie mm-hmm. thing. But when, you, when you're not connecting like a physical person or team behind it, it's, right. it's easy to like, it's easy to dish it. You know? right. A good way to remember it is um, it's not about just, you know, giving a device or no matter what it is, from an Xbox to a Zoom, it's more about really trying to show the experience. It's all about the experience. Yeah, and, and enthusiasm breeds enthusiasm. So if someone can see that you have a true passion, like the team has a true passion for what they do, and they're not just, you know... Um, releasing a product for the sake of market share but because they've given it really good thought because everyone is like you said passionate about the space about what they're doing about the next genesis of um you know of portable media um devices that enrolls people to help Absolutely. you you know trade you know blaze new trails which is really super um okay so you did that what were some like what were some of like the coolest things that you did that really were a little bit um different let's say from your normal um pr programs I think the biggest differentiator for this was the fact uh, that we went out to the blogging press and some of the more obscure press first um, over some of what you might think are some of your more traditional mainstream dailies. Um, And also, as we provided information under embargo, it was looping in, you know, the guys from, you know, Engadget with, you know, Saul Hansel from the New York Times and coupling them together. So it's it's really putting these people on equal footing and giving them, you know, a really insightful look into what was going on versus older traditional campaigns that many of us have done for many years, which is, you know, you go straight to Business Week mm-hmm. or you go straight to the Hollywood trade. It was really putting these guys on the same pl- playing field, um, which was new for a lot of the reporters as well. It was, it was an interesting experience. Did they, did anyone buck? Like, I mean, how, how did Saul do when you put him up against, you know, like some young buckshot kid? Oh, no, everyone, you know, everyone was so pleased to be invited to come up to check things out that I think that they were so enthralled with just learning about this new secret project that everyone had kind of heard about, but is it really happening and does it really wirelessly share that I think that they were so enthralled with what was going on and asking their questions that, you know, I don't think that they really even noticed who else was in the room. (laughs) That's cool. That's very, I mean, you know, it's nice. Well, because everyone you never know you know <laughs> always be nice to everyone because you don't know they could be your boss tomorrow exactly no and I, and I think you know this is speaking um, this like I said happened almost you know nine months ago so it's amazing how fast the world of PR and media relations and execution evolves and changes I, I think you know that reaching out to this community and coupling you know, those those two sort of layers uh, of, you know, the blogging audience mm-hmm. and your mainstream business press and your Hollywood trades and informing them has become more of, um, 
kind of the not traditional way of executing, but more accepted. I think more people are doing it. And maybe it's just me making that assumption, but just watching how other people are unfolding and launching products, I feel like others are also using this as a way to communicate. No, I agree. I think you're definitely seeing more of a transparency between, um, you know, the, the, the client, let's say the, you know, in this case it would be Microsoft, and then the consumers, there's much more transparency between, you know, enrolling um, media across the board to help, you know, hold that gauntlet up and, and, and charge down the pike for you, which is great. I mean, it is great. And if you can, if you can enroll these people to be a part of it, then that's a tremendous accomplishment. And we as PR professionals just need to be able to adapt to the way people are consuming information, like I said before. And if people are going to various sources, then we should adapt our, our program and we should change just like business changes to be able to better and more effectively communicate our messaging. Now, did you find, because you really had, in a way, two core programs that you, that you were promoting. You were promoting the device as well as like the, the whole marketplace experience. Yes, exactly. It's, you know, in digital music, it's just as much about the actual device as it is about the service and the experience. Um, they are very much connected, so they're, they're both equally important. So it's almost like launching two things at once you know, um, because people can go pick up a Zoom, but they may not realize how effective is it if they don't realize that, oh, I have a whole service that goes along with this that allows, you know, that we offer subscription and that also has varying features that are different from our other competitors, such as iTunes in the market. So it's the same philosophy that uh, Microsoft gave to the device that they gave the service. What else can we bring to the table to make this experience better? What do the consumers really want? And what can we do to step it up? So they took that same philosophy into the service, and we, therefore, when we were in the middle of launch, obviously wanted to couple those features into all of our messaging and positioning, communicate those just as clearly as we did the fact that you've got a new tangible device to buy. Which is so important. And, I, you know, we're, unfortunately, we're running out of time. Um, so I've got one pseudo last question for you. Sure. What was the difference between, you know, all of the grassroots efforts that you did and, you know, all the programs that, that you guys um, executed and then bringing in your big gun, meaning Bill, um, Bill Gates? The difference in that? Yeah. Like, I mean, in other words, you know, you did all of this hard work over here and then all of a sudden, you know, you, you, you know, you, you bring Bill out and you invite national media and you put the device in his hand and his picture is taken. Like how much extra exposure, how much easier was it to get or not get having Bill fronting? I think uh, they, by, at that point, because of the, the groundswell that had started many weeks before, mm-hmm. brand identity had already been established at that point. It's such a rumor machine out there that bringing Bill out, it was great to have him a part of this. And, of course, you know, it, it just it makes sense. But I think that the impact that had already been reached had, I think that we had achieved our goal at that point as a PR team as Edelman. Um, Good. That's what I wanted to hear, to be honest with you. But having Bill there just makes sense, of course, you know, and it was great to have him come out and and do the event with us. And, you know, we got the Today Show. So it was great. Yeah. I mean, I'd use Bill if I could get the Today Show. No (laughs) (laughs) You can lend me Bill. Um, And I'm excited. I don't know if you know this or not. So I'm going to out. I'm going to out Larry. Um, But out of your New York office, um, Larry Koffler from Edelman is actually going to be hosting um, a show with us. So I'm actually... Oh, really? <laughs> yes. So Fabulous. I'm, I'm super excited. Actually, it's going to be him and, um, and, and one of your clients. So, oh, very, which client? I don't know if I should. I don't know if I can say. I've already outed enough, but I just thought you I'd like throw that say. out there. No, I'll okay, let you know after. I'll, I'll go ask Larry. You <laughs> so I'm outing him. I won't get him in, in too much trouble. Although it was the client, I think, who really like said, "Hey, you know, we should do this thing," and it's a great. I'm not going to completely out the concept yet, but the concept's really cool. So we're excited to do you know more and more with you guys, and I'm so excited to hopefully see you um, accept your award. But like you said, accept the award or not, you still made it to final status, which is such a huge, huge yeah. accomplishment. Edelman is really excited, and, and we, you know, thank, thank you, thank the PRSA for acknowledgement. So we, we, um, we're, we're very pleased to be a part of this. Yeah, I mean, this is terrific. And just quickly, you guys, you know, met your, your two objectives, 
which was, um, you know, objective one was to establish Zune as a new entertainment brand for the digital music space. And yeah. second, um, and secure the second position among the 30 gig hard drive portable media device available on the market, um, as well as build awareness around Zune's unique ability to create shared music and entertainment experiences for consumers by generating traditional and non-traditional media coverage with more than 95% message pickup. Yeah. So, and it's a continuing, you know, it's a continuing journey and we look forward, you know, to continue to deliver, you know, the messaging and new stuff as it comes. You know what? And this is, it's super exciting. We can't wait. And of course, our business, um, you know, at Webmaster Radio really relies heavily. (laughs) On radio. On radio and also on, right, and on portable media devices because so many people are consuming things now on demand. And a lot of people don't necessarily drive to work anymore. So you have people on buses who can tune in and listen. And Well, you know what? And I'll tell you something very interesting. My, my producer's going, wrap it up, wrap it up. And I'm going, he can't, if, if he pulls the plug on me, there's not a lot I can do. But, it, you know, it's very interesting because um, Pandy actually did an article um, saying, you know, we don't understand, like, the validity of podcasts. You can just go to blogs and consume, like, your, you know, all of your information in 10 minutes. And they actually sent people out on planes on buses you know working out in the morning all different places and sent them out looking at um listening to all these various podcasts and the interesting thing was they they picked the top five search engine related podcasts on the internet Mm -hmm. and um very happily so i'm giving us a shameless plug here we were chosen all five um that were chosen came from webmaster radio which is great because they you know we're we have great content and the way we posture it and and the branding elements congratulations thank you very much which is exciting but people people don't realize is just like you were saying people are in commutes they're working out you know we're an on-demand we're becoming an on-demand sort of um society and having mm-hmm. the ability to download you know your favorite movies your favorite music sharing that experience um is super important into everyone you know in everyone's daily life and that whole convergence of all of these aspects of media whether it be from an educational perspective or a relaxation perspective is super important absolutely it's about convergence convenience and community mm-hmm. yeah absolutely really. absolutely it's, we call ourselves a community destination so yasmin thank you so much um, oh, thank you i'd love to be able to reach out to you for another interview because you have a wealth of knowledge to share with us anytime we'd uh, be happy to oblige good i appreciate it so listen have a great rest of your day you have great cause to celebrate so keep on doing that thank a- you and good luck on june 14th Great. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right, everyone, stand by. Uh, We will be right back with Cover Story. Stick around. Cover Story. We'll be back after this short break. Welcome to the 11th Annual International Web Award Competition. Walk the red carpet as the Web Marketing Association is now accepting entries for the Web Awards, recognizing the best websites in 96 different industries. Winners receive a beautiful image plaque or certificate of achievement, higher visibility for your company, valuable feedback from the expert judges, links to your site from the highly ranked Web Awards site, and a free press release from PR Web. So the winner goes to... Well, you'll have to see for yourself. You can't win if you don't enter. Go to www.webaward.org to enter and win. Hurry, deadline for entry is May 31st. $2 million, $2 million, $2 million. just kicking ass with domain name. Monty, 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 Monty. Monty, 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 Monty. Monty, and uh, what, what's uh, what's been your highest domain name sale? How much money was it for? It was approximately one hundred and forty-four thousand dollars. About one hundred and fifty grand. That's correct. Okay, great. You have had eBay by Rent.com and Shopping.com for a combined one point four billion dollars. Monty, 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 Monty. the master of your domain. Monty. Literally, probably ninety days after buying it uh, for eighty thousand dollars, Interbrew bought it for. Seven million dollars. We appraised the property and helped get it sold for three point four million. It was the most valuable asset that they had. Six million dollars or ten million dollars on a domain name. When we sold Autos.com for two point two million dollars, people thought it was nuts too. <laughs> domain Masters, only on Webmaster Radio. Be the master of your domain.
Mr. Scott, I can't get any more information onto our website. I'm doing the best I can, Captain. There's no more room on the server. It's going to blow. Evaluation, Mr. Spock. The logical answer is Lunar Pages. Reputation, reliability, and legendary 24-7 support makes Lunar Pages the host to cling on to. Did you say cling on? Aye, Captain. Sign up at LunarPages.com and get $700 off coffee cup software absolutely free. If you call, they will answer. Lunar Pages it is. Beam us aboard, Mr. Scott. For out-of-this-world web hosting, Lunar Rocks. Sign up for web hosting with LunarPages.com and use coupon code LUNATICS to get $28 off. Commercials off. Now back to Cover Story. We're reserving a headline for you. Only on WebmasterRadio.fm. Here's your host. Hello, everyone. This is Brandy Shapiro-Babin with our very special edition of Cover Story this week. Uh, we are continuing coverage of the Public Relations Society of America's Silver, Silver Anvil Awards uh, with a special focus on finalists. So talk about a, a hardcore change. Uh, we, we're going from the non-traditional to a little bit more traditional today um, with our second interview being with um, a window in the human spirit, the National World World War One Museum. That's a tongue twister. Um, it's category 8A, Marketing Consumer Services, and it's the National World, World War One Museum with Fleischman Hillier, Kansas City, and O'Neill Communications. And today we have with us um, Alex Wendell, who is the Managing Supervisor at Fleischman Hillier, Kansas City, where he provides uh, strategic communications counsel and public relations support, including media relations, crisis reputation, uh, public affairs, and interna- internal communications to a variety of corporate clients and nonprofit organizations. Um, he's also served, oh my goodness, as a Peace Corps volunteer in Russia from 2001 to 2002. And in 2006, he served as the uh, project manager for Fleischmann Hilliard's public relations campaign in support of the National War One Museum. And we also have Mark Cox, who currently serves as the interim director of the National World War One Museum. He started with the museum in 2002, and prior to his current position, he was a director of visitor services. He has extensive experience in strategic planning and development, fundraising, branding, cross-marketing. Oh, my God, he's done it all. Um, And he's been actively involved in civic and charitable efforts in the Kansas City area for over 25 years. Welcome, Alex and Mark. Hi, Brandy. Hey. Hey. So who's who, please? This is Alex. Hey, Alex. Welcome. Thank you. This is Mark. Oh, perfect. All right, you guys. So this is exciting. Very exciting, both uh, both for Fleischman Hillard and the museum, and, and uh, I'll also speak on behalf of our partners in this O'Neill Communications. But then, uh, just very exciting for for Kansas City too. Right, because I'm you know no offense, but Kansas City is not always the hotbed, let's say, of like media excitement and. Uh, no, that's very true, and uh, so we were just thrilled uh, to work on a. Uh, a project of this magnitude, and, and to get the uh, the national and, and frankly international media coverage uh, that we did for for what we just felt was a very worthwhile uh, worthwhile project. Good for you. And this is actually an interesting. Um, let's let's give an overview um, to the listening audience. You guys had to take a war that happened almost a hundred years ago and make it relevant today. And in nineteen, is this correct? In nineteen eighteen, the citizens of Kansas City raised two point five million in ten days. To build yes, this war that, memorial, that is correct. Right to build this war memorial, and it wasn't until 2004 that Kansas City actually approved a city bond to issue. That's correct as well. To develop this, so I mean, there's a, a huge chunk of time. So first of all, what was the impetus for them to go from you know um, 1918 holding this money in reserve to 2004? Okay, great, let's start executing on this. Yeah. Well, the memorial was was dedicated in 1921 and completed in 1926. Um, the, uh, the facade itself and the memorial had two existing museum buildings plus a tower okay. that overlooks Union Station in downtown Kansas City. Uh, the, the current museum up until 2004 were those two buildings, Memory Hall and Exhibit Hall, uh, which were only about uh, 2,500 square feet total. So it was a very small museum. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've been collecting items since the end of the war, so we have a, a vast collection of artifacts and documents and letters and diaries, and that's one thing that, that Alex and his group uh, uh, saw right off the bat of how to use uh, the artifacts and the stories 
into the uh, implementation of the grand opening of the new museum. Which is exciting. Okay, so let's let's talk about um, Mark. Um, I'm sorry, Alex, if you don't mind, sure. about the research that that um, that went into planning the reopening. Well, and, and you know, as, as you well know, I mean, we think that's key in, in any successful public relations campaign. And uh, to your earlier point, of the, one of the main challenges was, you know, it, unfortunately, this really has become the forgotten war. And so we felt uh, it necessary, despite the fact uh, that we had one of what is really the world's preeminent collections of World War One artifacts, you know, we needed to do the research up front to determine, you know, what are going to be the motivations of, of people to come to this. Uh, you know, what are going to be the the themes that drive uh, our media relations later in the year. Uh, who do we think our, our target audience uh, in, in terms of visitors is going to be? And working through uh, Fleischman Hillard's brand development group, you know, we did uh, uh, message labs and, uh, and message testing, and then working through a, a local company here, we're, we're able to, to validate that through some online research that we did uh, where people... Uh, you know, respond to, to, to emails and, and literally go through and, and uh, it's an online poll, if you will. Uh, we were able to test the messages that we developed, uh, the three thematic uh, themes or the three thematic uh, um, uh, themes that we used throughout, uh, throughout the rest of the year came to the forefront. Uh, and then we also were able to, uh, to develop the, uh, the logo based on that. Interesting, interesting. And you also, you also were able to understand who you believed um, would be your primary audiences. Exactly. The, the, two, the two groups that came to light were, were uh, empty nester men uh, who would likely the vi- visit the, uh, the museum in, in, uh, either by themselves or, or with a spouse, uh, and their interest was, was for personal education. And then uh, you know, family, family-centric women who tended uh, demographically to be a little bit younger and would likely take their children and, and families there, uh, and their motivations uh, we determined were pri- primarily for entertainment. Okay, very interesting. So that you've actually got a pretty broad base of people with a potentiality to visit the memorial. Oh, exactly. And and Mark can talk a little bit about you know the museum has now been open six months and and uh, and we were just talking before we got on with you, Brandy, that uh, fortunately in this case you know the research really has uh, has played out much like we we thought it would and and uh, you know they've seen uh, these uh, these demographics uh, in their uh, in their visitors and uh, and their in their audience over the first six months. That is so terrific. And all right, so we're talking about budget. We I love talking about budget. Budget makes me happy. Um, of course, I always need more of one, but that's like a whole other issue. Sure. Um, you all right? So the PR program that was conducted over the twelve months from January through December two thousand and six total budget for the program was four hundred sixty thousand, and this included a breakout of a hundred thousand for media relations, thirty thousand for branding activities, and then another three hundred thirty thousand for event planning and execution. Right. But you guys actually, which we'll get into further, you actually way exceeded um, the return on investment. Oh, oh, most definitely, and, mm-hmm. and you know this was this was an important project. Uh, is, is an important project for for our community and, and our region. And uh, you know both Fleischman Hillard and, and O'Neill Communication made uh, pro bono contributions of, of time uh, on top of that. But um, no, I mean with the the return in, in terms of coverage and and what the museum has seen in terms of attendance over the course of the first six months, you know, far exceeds. You're you're quite right. The uh, uh, you know, the, the, the dollar amount outlay. that was attached to the actual campaign. Okay, and what you guys, your objectives were to generate local, national, whatever, international awareness of the, of the museum. You wanted everyone to know about the museum um, as an important tourist destination through at least 100 million media impressions and also develop and implement grand opening events that generated initial excitement and enthusiasm for the museum and the community, resulting in large visitor members and positive visitor experiences. Right. But, I mean, that was really, uh, you know, when we set out, we started working on this in, in January of '06, almost uh, about 11 months before uh, before the opening, and, and frankly, I think looking back on it now, we all wish we would have had you know about uh, 21 months uh, to pull it all together. But um, you know, Fleischman Hillard, in, in partnership with O'Neill Communications, a, a local firm here, uh, took this on as, as our objectives. You know, one was obviously the the branding and, and uh, the logo development, and uh, you know, developing that for the, for the museum, but and then also the, the media relations in the second half of the year, all leading up to three days of events. Uh, you know, culminating in the, in the grand opening uh, in early December, which is exciting. And you had you had a couple of um, interesting um, personalities involved too. Raph um, Applebaum, 
Right, most definitely. Ralph is, is uh, if, uh, if folks are familiar with museums, I mean, he is really one of the, the top museum and exhibit designers in, in the world today. Other projects of note uh, include the Holocaust uh, Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. the Constitution Center in Philadelphia. Um, Mark, uh, he's working on, the, I know he's working on the Capitol Visitors Center in Washington, D.C. Uh, I mean, he's I mean, got projects, uh, I think he once told me, in 40 countries around the world. I mean, he is, really, uh, he is really it. So we were very lucky and felt very fortunate that somebody of, of this caliber would, would come to Kansas City uh, and, and you know, develop really what has become a world-class attraction. Which is, ter- I mean, which is terrific. And you also had um, Brigadier General um, Stephen Burkhauser, or Burkheiser. Uh, he, General Burkheiser, who has recently retired, uh, was uh, was five years with the uh, the museum, and, and his real role in this was, you know, getting the project uh, open on time and on budget, and uh, you know, being a retired Marine Corps general, uh, there was nobody <laughs> better uh, right. to take that challenge, and uh, and he delivered. He did. Was he fun to work with, or did you find him overly anal? Uh, well, I'll, I'll defer to Mark on that, who uh, who had a work with Steve uh, directly. But uh, yeah, it was it was a fun project. Uh, you know, there was a lot of tedious days of of making sure things were were going smoothly and on time. And and with any any construction project, there's always something that comes up because uh, the museum actually exists below the main deck of the memorial. And if people are interested in seeing what the memorial looks like, they can go to our website, which is nwwone.org, and you can see pictures of the memorial. The expansion of the museum is actually 30,000 square feet underneath the deck. When they reopened the memorial uh, in uh, uh, in 2002, part of that reopening and redoing the memorial was to expand the space. So the the space was always there, and that's what got Ralph Applebaum excited and the board of directors and everyone else is we had 30,000 square feet plus an additional 20,000 square feet for a research center. So all this combined led to the new museum. So there were lots of different people involved. And, uh, you know, Steve Burkheiser did a, a fantastic job of managing all the different contractors and all the, the creative people and, the, you know, Alex's group and the O'Neill Communications uh, it was it true project management at its best. Good, good. And, and, and I, I will add, it's, it's never a bad thing with, uh, with Steve being a uh, retired uh, Marine Corps general when you're a little afraid of your client. I mean, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Right, right. Yeah, right. Because he can whip everyone's tail right into shape. Exactly. Which is kind of interesting. It's just interesting to see the mentality between... Um, you know, a, a public citizen versus a, you know, what am I saying? A private citizen versus someone that's enlisted. Yeah. No, he, I mean, his, he, you know, what he brought to the table is 30 years of experience in project management and, uh, and motivating people. And uh, as I said, I mean, if, if not for him, uh, you know, I, you know, he, he was successful in, in getting this open on time and on budget and, and uh, the, you know, the citizens of Kansas city owe him a debt of gratitude. Cool. Good, good, good. So what you guys, all right. So now we've got execution which is important. And I really want to keep a focus on the fact that, and I don't mean to, 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 to keep doing this, but World War I was unfortunately an extremely important war. It was considered the war to end all wars. That's right. You know, but you're, it's, it's in Kansas City, which is not, you know, it's, it's a little off the beaten track. Right. You know, it's not like there's millions of visitors coming to New York City and, you, pl- you know, you plant something important there and it's very easy for people to adopt that on their, um, you know, on, on their Liberty Trail or what have you when they're, when they're in New York. But getting people excited about this in the community and then reaching out to the masses and enrolling them is a difficult charter. Sure. So let's talk about how you guys created the messaging and what you did because you got some great features in, um, you know, tier one publications and um, media outlets. You know, I, I think it, it was a, a couple of things that, that really led to our, to our success in November and December. One is is we started very early. Uh, over the course of this summer, uh, we started, I, I think, back in July of, of 2006. That was when we made our first uh, you know, we had spent kind of the spring putting together our media lists and, and developing uh, the appropriate contacts and, uh, you know, hundreds of, uh, of publications, every, everything from the top-tier newspapers that you mentioned to broadcast to uh, architecture and design, trade pubs, travel and tourism, military history, uh, very extensive media lists. And then over the course of the summer, that was our initial outreach to those folks. And, and we had worked to put together a uh, – worked with a local – video production company here in town 
who donated their services to, to develop a, a six-minute promotional video. They flew to New York and, and interviewed Ralph Applebaum at his offices. We had uh, uh, General Burkheiser here in, in his uh, uh, dress, dress uh, Marine Corps uniform. I mean, just it just jumped off the screen at you. And then they were they were able to intersperse those interviews with uh, some of the early renderings that Applebaum's folks had done, as well as archival footage uh, that the museum had to, uh, had, that, and really put together a very compelling piece. So that was kind of the core of our initial outreach uh, to get people interested uh, and excited about the project. Um, you know, and so our initial contact was in July and August. Uh, at that point, you know, except for the long lead publications, everyone said, you know, this sounds interesting. Come back to me in the fall. And and we found that uh, having established that initial contact, uh, you know, our our follow up then back in October and November was was far easier. Uh, and and really, the two things that 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 sold, you know, that continue to sell this today are are what was born out in the research and 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 kind of the two. Th- you know, drivers of our media pitch were one uh, come and experience World War One through the eyes that, of of those that lived mm-hmm. it. And so, if you come to Kansas City and you visit the museum, it's more than looking at stuff in cases. I mean, clearly they have one of the greatest collections of artifacts in the world. But there's a lot more than that. There's there's interactivity. Uh, there's some great audiovisual experience. Uh, they've got a full size uh, replica trench. Uh, a bomb crater that you you actually stand in, and, and so you really start to get a sense of of what this experience was like. And then, two, as I mentioned, the artifacts. I mean, uh, in addition to the Imperial War Museum in, in London, this is probably the greatest collection of, of World War One uh, material. Um, you know, artillery. Um, you know, uniforms, letters, diaries that Mark mentioned, 49,000 artifacts here at the museum, all wow. of which are obviously not on display. <laughs> but, I mean, those were the two things that really resonated both with visitors uh, and, and then also with the media was, was the experience and, um, and, and, and what they would see when they got there. Which is terrific. How much of the media did you actually get to physically come um, to the venue? Uh, well, I mean, for all the reasons you mentioned, you know, for uh, unfortunately, I mean, we've got a lot of exciting stuff going on here in Kansas City, but it is difficult at times to get top-tier media. But uh, in looking at the list here, I mean, we had actual uh, reporters from the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Chicago Tribune, uh, Christian Science Monitor, uh, Associated Press, um, uh, some of the uh, the airline uh, travel magazines that, that we were in sent freelancers, uh, and then others uh, responded. Uh, we had tra- um, ABC News, uh, World News Tonight came uh, and actually spent a day shooting here the day before the museum opened. And so, you know, I mean, that, I mean, frankly, a little bit even surprising to us. I mean, how great uh, uh, the interest at a na- on a national level. That's terrific. That's terrific. And you also did something with Fox and Friends. I actually, I like them. I think they're so underrated, unfortunately. But it was great. They were, and this comes through, uh, I mean, this is a total credit deserve, uh, to given to our friends at O'Neill Communications. Uh, Fox and Friends was here for, for another program uh, or for another event or cause that, that O'Neill was, was pitching to them. And it just so happened, and all of this was ha- happening in early December in the middle of a, a snow and ice storm, if you remember, Mark. Okay. And, and it just happened that, you know, Fox and Friends was already here in Kansas City, and we encouraged them to come over, uh, and, and they were thrilled and, and loved it. We were mentioned on the Weather Channel. Uh, it was, I mean, it was just phenomenal, phenomenal coverage for, for several days in, in late November, early December of last year. That's awesome. That's awesome. It's snowing. Come hang out and, and <laughs> be in 19, you know, 40. Well, it's, uh, you know, it, except when we had to get sorry. the uh, the uh, satellite media truck up uh, oh. uh, about 100 yards of uh, steep grade. It was uh, all fun until then. Right. But you guys made it through, which is super exciting. It was tremendous. We, we did do a, a satellite media tour with both Ralph Applebaum and, and General Burkheiser on the uh, that Friday, uh, uh, December 1st, the, the day before the official public opening. And uh, we're on 19 markets uh, across the country uh, on their morning television broadcasts. And, um, again, just, just tremendous uh, reception, both locally and, and nationally. Well, and I think the important thing, too, especially for our listeners, is, you know, it's so important to understand who your prospective markets are and, and, and create that market segmentation. Because not only do you have, you know, um, you, you know, you did your research, you understood who potentially they could be, but then also things like, you know, people that are interested in architecture, they would be, um, you know, inclined to come and visit the memorial. You know, there's a lot of different types of people outside of people that are, um, you know, historical buffs that, sure. would be, that would be interested in going. And 
understanding, you know, really cutting, slicing that pie as many, as many levels as possible or as many pieces as possible so that you can reach out to them in a way that um, communicate with them in a way they need um, to be communicated with is really wonderful. And it seems like you guys have done a terrific job with that. Well, and there's just there's just a lot of modern day relevance, uh, uh, I think, and, and this was something that General Burkheiser always talked about, and and really it's reflected in, in even the name of our our silver an- anvil entry, a, a window to the human spirit. That, uh, as I said, this is more than just coming and, and looking at war memorabilia. Mm-hmm. It really causes you to ask questions, uh, you know, about society and and about yourself. Frankly, um, I will tell you that. Uh, ABC World News Tonight, you know, their interest uh, was, in fact, uh, the reason that they took the time and, and sent a production crew and uh, producer and, and correspondent all the way to Kansas City was they were particularly interested in the ties between World War One and, and the, uh, the situation we face in, in Iraq and the Middle East today. Uh, given that those geographic boundaries were drawn up at the end of World War One, some of the uh, the modern day you know relevance and, and mm-hmm. timeliness of uh, of decisions that were made almost a hundred years ago, which is important. You know, history keeps repeating itself, and if you keep reminding yourself of history, it's not like it's not as likely to occur again. Uh, that's right. So I do. I think that's an extremely important mantra. Um, you got all right. So you, you then you you went ahead and you created three events. The first one was Thursday, November thirtieth, and it was a perspective. It was a joint. You know what you were talking about, world renowned um, historian um, Sir John Keegan with Ralph Applebaum, um, and you. The event was sold out with more than two hundred and fifty people. Right, which is terrific. Friday, December first, you had a celebration. It was a black tie fundraiser for the museum. More than three hundred and fifty guests, which is lovely, and um, you raised more than two hundred thousand dollars. That's right. Which is terrific. And then on Saturday, December, my God, you guys must have been so burnt out by the end of this. Um, Saturday, December 2nd, you had a commemoration, which more than 750 people attended the grand opening ceremony. Right. And, uh, and, and, and frankly, that number easily could, if it, if it had been a day like the day we're having here in Kansas City, could have been a easily, you know, three or four times that amount, but it was in about 20 or 30 degree weather. And uh, so those that did come out on, uh, on Saturday, December 2nd were... Uh, really, I mean, it was a very emotional, very special day for those of us in Kansas City, but uh, uh, very hearty souls, too, to uh, brave <laughs> the elements. But it's not, I mean, but that's that's really wonderful. I mean, when you think about it, because sometimes, especially in the winter, I'm a, I'm a Yankee, um, it's, it's easy to say you want to do something, and when the elements sort of work against you, it's, it's you know, we tend to hibernate. Yeah, we had, we got uh, we got about six inches of snow on Thursday, November thirtieth, and uh, uh, to the credit of the uh, Kansas City, Missouri Parks and Recreation Department, I mean that uh, facility and, and the area in which we were going to do the opening on uh, on uh, Saturday, December. I mean that was clear, and uh, you know there was no problem with parking or people walking, and, and it was a true round the clock effort to, to get it ready, and, and certainly something you know that you can't count on when you start planning 11 months in advance. But, uh, you know, it, just, it, it was just indicative of the true team, uh, you know, nature that, that, uh, uh, that we worked through. You know, everybody from the city to here at Fleischmann-Hiller, mm-hmm. the museum staff, O'Neill Communications, really coming together what was, for what we all believe is, is a very important project. And, you know, something that was interesting, we, prior to your interview, we were interviewing um, Yasmin from, um, she, she works with Edelman, and she's also on the Zoom team for Microsoft. And, you know, one of the biggest differentiators for their product launch was just the fact that, like, the entire team had such a passion for what they did. Right. That, you know, it, it really is. It enrolls you. You know, it's well, infectious. And, 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 you know, I mean, uh, hopefully my boss isn't listening, but, I, I, but I, what I have always said about this is, uh, you know, everything we do here at Fleischmann-Hillard is, is important to somebody, uh, you know, to our clients. I mean, it differs in importance to me personally. But I will say this this project, this museum, and, and frankly because of the people that I got to work with on mm-hmm. it, uh, we were all deeply passionate about and we were all, you know, it was all very important to us personally and, and professionally. Yeah, I mean, that's awesome. And what you guys, you know, from a... Um you know, from an execution standpoint and from a measurable standpoint, you total broadcast was more than 18.5 uh, million viewers. We already mentioned all of the, you know, t- um, top tier and media outlets that you had exposure through, and I'm sure we've missed a few. Um, but then in addition, so you also had, you know, 1,300 radio stations, including NPR, CBS, and CNN Radio, right. which is awesome. But more than 32,637 visitors in December 2006 through January 2007 more than the total number of visitors to the Liberty Memorial in the previous 12 months combined, which is phenomenal. That's right. I'll, I'll let Mark talk a little bit about the figures that they saw initially and, and over the, the course of the last six months. But I think, uh, um, you know, due in, due in part, one, because it's just a tremendous 
attraction of, of great, you know, Importance. local and regional mm-hmm. and national interest. But two, you know, it, you know, because of some of the the excitement and enthusiasm we generated uh, late last fall uh, for this project. Yeah, and the uh, you know, Kansas City has cared about the memorial since it was built, and uh, in 1994, it was actually closed due to deterioration of the deck area. And it stayed closed for eight years. And a sales tax was passed, and it was rebuilt. And when it was rebuilt, that's when this space was created. So people in the Kansas City area have gone from, it's really, it's still the same facade, but it's the National World War I Museum designated by Congress. And we didn't have that before. And with the help of Fleshman and O'Neill, we were able to then kind of create this new excitement for uh, people wanting to come in. And because of all the press and the, the local Kansas City Star and everything else, our attendance numbers have been going, you know, uh, we, we were actually surprised by the early numbers that we got through December. Uh, there was one day we pushed 2,200 people through wow. in about a seven-hour period. Yeah. Uh, and numbers continue to be strong. Uh, last month, the last two months, we've done 15 to 16,000 in paid admission. And um, we're finding, you know, that our, uh, uh, the, you've seen our research, our research, you know, 51% of our visitors, uh, they're driving uh, 0 to 20 miles, and uh, 26% are driving more than 60 miles. So we're getting that regional draw um, to continue to come in, and now we're headed into our true tourism months. Mm-hmm. We've pushed over 10,000 kids through through school groups in the past uh, three to four months since we've been open. I would think that's so a rich we're audience. The, the senior tours are coming coming through uh, and stopping to see us because a lot of them had parents in World War One, or uncles or sisters or fathers and things like that. So they come in and they're talking about their experiences when they were a young child. Um, some were even at, were at the dedication in 1926. Wow, that's mind-boggling. It is, it is. And we, we get some phone calls and letters saying, well, I've got a letter from so-and-so, and, and I remember my mom taking me to the dedication. I was eight years old or, or whatever. And I think that's the kind of goes back to the whole, the whole issue of it's stories about people. It's not just a gun in a case. It's the story about the gun in the case and who owned it and what they lived and who they were. Well, it allows you to go back to a period in time that, that we're so um, disconnected from. And like you said, experience it through the eyes of the people that lived it. Right. Which is so, which is an, an amazing experience because that doesn't matter whether it's, you know, something from 80 years ago or something that was eight years ago. To be able to put yourself in the footsteps, in the shoes of someone else is an amazing learning experience, both from like a historical perspective and just from like an orientation of like who you are as a person. Well, and that's what Ralph Applebaum talks about. You know, it, it's not about the museum. It's about who you are mm-hmm. after you come out of the museum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, there, there's a lot of, lot of important things that, like when you walk across to enter into the museum, you walk across a glass bridge, and down below are 9,000 poppies. Silk poppies, but still 9,000 <laughs> poppies. And those represent, there's one poppy for every 1,000 killed in World War I, wow. combatant deaths. Well, that, that math adds up to 9 million combatant deaths. Okay, so it was a why devastating poppies? war. And what Ralph wants people to understand, before they actually go into the museum in the theater to start their experience, they are over what represents of lives lost through the war. So it's a very powerful um, experience before you even actually get into the museum itself. Right. Our min- minimum time now we're hearing is two hours to go through the museum. Half that crowd comes out and says, i got to come back. I didn't have enough time. Good, good. So I have to ask you, <laughs> why poppies? Why did you guys choose poppies? Well, the poppy was kind of a symbol uh, coming out of World War One in the fields of Belgium and, and France and the, uh, in Flanders Field, uh, the famous poem about the poppies always come back. And they thought that was a good representation that there, there is hope, even after mm-hmm. war, that there is new life every year, you know, they come up. So it, it has kind of become the symbol of World War One. You know, the VFW has the little poppies they give out on Veterans Day and Memorial Day uh, growing up as kids, and they still have those as well. So that kind of became something they the wanted symbol. to latch on to, to give people a representation of the number of people who died in this war. Right. And of course, you know, me whose mind goes to like opium instead of 
Beautiful. Um, I've been mentioned a couple of times. (laughs) (laughs) It reminds me of the Wizard of Oz. Poppies and Bobbies. Anyway, um, this has been such an awesome and enlightening interview. I God, I just wish the both of you, Alex Wendell, uh, managing supervisor at Fleischman Hilliard in Kansas City, and Mark Cox, uh, the interim director of the National World War One Museum. How do you say that three times fast? Like, do you ever have an issue saying World War One Museum? Well, I do, but I won't admit to it. Uh, and that's why, you know, we, we, we encourage people to, uh, there, we have many different things that people can, can uh, log on to on our website, uh, which is nwwone.org, uh, and they can log on, they can see photos, they can, they can interact, they can buy a brick in our Walk of Honor, awesome. um, they can kind of get a glimpse of what the museum is like, and, and what we're hoping is they'll, they'll, uh, use some of their their money on expensive gas and drive down and and see us and pay a visit here this summer good i think that's a fabulous plan you know both of you it's it's wonderful you're definitely impassioned about um the program that you executed here and so important that you know your peers believe that as well which is always a nice reinforcement to the good work that you've done right that's correct so congratulations on your finalist status for the silver anvils i think that's super exciting and uh we'll see you in new york Look forward to it. All right. Thank you for a terrific interview, Alex Wendell and Mark Cox. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right, you guys, we've had a terrific uh, edition of Cover Story again today. Zune, uh, Microsoft's digital, me- um, digital media player, of course, um, with the digital marketplace. And, of, and, and in addition to that, obviously, the World War One Museum. I said that properly this time. Um, Two very different campaigns, but um, obviously the same in, in regard to strategy and execution. It's all about the passion. If you believe in it, um, you can enroll people to help spread the good word. So speaking about spreading the good word, stay tuned. And next week, we'll have continuing coverage on the PRSA's Silver Anvil finalists.